The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. Oh, good evening, Mr. Brown. Did you get many pictures? Look, that guy you sent me this morning isn't going to work out. I didn't send him. All right, look, I'm going. All right. Hey, hey, that you, please. We can't make a film about your bloody country from the hotel lobby. Can we, for Christ's sake? Lousy bastards. Jeez, that kid, eh? Zangara. Yeah, bastards. Bastards. Leave it, for Christ's sake. We'll be out of here by the end of the week. Having some trouble, Mr. Oh, just a fundamental difference about the value of human life, Mr. Dexter. Nothing that need concern you. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, August 11th, 2016. I'm Bob Metz. And I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right-wing. It's Just Right. To black and white under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Our guest today last joined us on our first broadcast of this year as a member of a panel discussing a broad number of issues looking forward into this new year. And today it's one-on-one. I count Robert and me as as one. (laughs) And our guest is John Thompson of the Strategic Capital Intelligence Groups and also of the Royal Canadian Military Institute. Welcome, John. Thank you for the invite. Well, we've certainly got a lot to talk about. John has been a top policy advisor to governments, think tanks, and international conferences on terrorism, organized crime, political extremism, propaganda, conflict. He's an ex-military officer. And he's had an extraordinary experience as a public speaker who specializes in sensitive controversies, which is, you're on the right show for that, that's for sure. And before we get our conversation underway, we just want to remind our listeners that they can and should write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, Hear us on WBCQ at 5130 kilohertz and on channel 292 at 6070 kilohertz. Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org. Now, John, I'm feeling a bit uh, self-conscious, even daring to call you an expert, given our theme of the show we had last week on the problem with experts. Do you regard yourself as an expert in your field, or are you in the business of making predictions at all, or... Uh, you're not being paid through government subsidies or anything like that, right? <laughs> I think I sort of go back to a, a sort of a Socratic uh, idea that the real point about uh, learning uh, is that you actually find the questions mm-hmm. that you need to ask. And uh, the more I learn, uh, especially about terrorism, the more I realize I don't know. Now, that's been true for 35 years, and I still can't answer the questions that first attracted me to the subject. So if that doesn't make me an expert, I don't know what does. <laughs> not, not being able to answer the questions. Well, maybe you can help us out with some of them today. Since the beginning of the year, even just, say, going back as far as November, how many terrorist acts have been you know, very noticeable in the, in, in the world scene, from France to Florida to... Dallas, Texas was even counted as one, although that didn't involve Islamic terrorism as such. Well, one of the beauties about... Do you see a pattern to all of this? Yes, there is. Beyond the the main Islamist issue with terrorism? Well, uh, that is the main source of terrorism. It's it's not the only one, of course, but the new development has been the absolute explosion of lone actors operating on their own, especially out of the, the jihad movement. 
uh, and they are coming out with uh, some very imaginative attacks and it's not guns and bombs anymore as we've seen it's transport trucks mm-hmm. uh, it's grabbing a fire axe off the uh, uh, the brackets it's uh, taking a machete <clears throat> it's uh, buying a black market handgun instead of waiting for something uh, like a powerful assault rifle a lot of people would say well these are acts of weakness not strength because people are they don't have a weapon anybody can get in a car or a truck and do well, this well, kind of thing well that's part of the strategy is, is to turn the weakness into a weapon remember that the the big but a strategy to what end? To commit more and more acts of terrorism. One of the, the points... You, you know, just, just, to, just to address that, that doesn't even sound like an end. Like, like maybe, maybe we're going to be getting into that issue of mental illness off the top. Like, what kind of people see terrorism as an end to anything? Well, that's the point. Ter- the point of terrorism is terrorism. In, in, usually in support of an ideology, but also... In well, the that's mind. the end, then. That is the, that is the end. To, to weaken the society, to make people afraid, to break down uh, points of trust, to polarize. And, and if you keep doing this, um, the old uh, offering in terrorism is it sort of uh, what the terrorist offers the society is attacking as a choice of heads I win, tails you lose. If you react too much against me, you lose. Well, the terrorist loses every time. They're always dead. So that's not a very rational act to begin with. Well... I think that if you go back to the 70s at least when you had things like the FLQ in Quebec, I think their terrorist acts of blowing up mailboxes, etc., and killing, was it Pierre Laporte, those were to ostensibly bring attention to what they considered to be a grievance or an injustice. And in their minds it was English Canada versus French Canada, and they wanted separation. And then you had... Other isolated incidences, like uh, the uh, killing of the Israelis in the Munich Olympics. Again, people would thought that those were acts of terror to bring attention to a perceived grievance on the part of those terrorists. That was the, the terrorism of 40 years ago. Was that Terrorism was propaganda of the deed was one term. It mm-hmm. was also a revolutionary theater. There was also the the revolutionary uh, manual for the mini uh, guerrilla, uh, Carlos Marigela, that pointed out that terrorism was also a form of preconditioning society for a general civil conflict if you wanted to go that far. But again, the terrorism of 40 years ago was shaped along different ideological lines. What we've seen in the last 30 years is the, the evolution of a more genocidal form of terrorism. The terrorist is basically saying, my world does not have you in it. You know, I want you to knuckle under. I want you to be completely craven. We're not even talking about the new society we're proposing, not very much. We just want you terrorized and out of the way. And and so the point is to, is to cause as much fear and as much of a body count as you can. I liked what you said before when you when you sort of said that terrorism is an end unto itself. And I I would agree that that is the case for many, many terrorists. I think it's the case for all of them. At, at some point, the, the terrorist is also answering an inner requirement. The terrorist is someone who needs people to feel frightened of him. He needs to consider himself a person of menace and power and significance. Sounds like there's a psychological element to their madness. Yeah, 
it's it's not madness. It, it's actually, uh, I think if you go back to the old uh, sociological hierarchy of, of motivation uh, Abraham, by Abraham Maslow, you're, you're looking at self-actualization. The terrorist is often defining who he thinks he should be. And, and how do you separate that from madness then when you have such a bizarre goal as self-destruction and the destruction of everything? I mean, why not just put a bullet in your head and get it over with? Like, wouldn't you realize your goals a lot quicker? I, I don't think terrorism is an end in itself. I, I don't even think terrorism, I think it's just a tactic to the larger end, be that Sharia law, be that some sort of religious life on this earth. Well, I think, that, I think that it is an end unto itself. If you recall when, uh, pre- previous shows, we're, we're talking about an ideology, whether it is the Islamic fundamentalism or simply the ideology of the left, which has always been to achieve a uh, society, a culture, a world of despair, of hatred, of the good for being the good, of hatred of life for being alive. Um, It is a cult of death. And so when you go out and you destroy children on a bus and you blow up planes, you are achieving your end. That is your end, is destruction. The goal of the left is to destroy. Okay, but my point was then, if that isn't madness, how does one define madness? (laughs) Well, (laughs) okay, that's what I want to know. What's the distinction then? Actually, very few terrorists could be thought of as being conventionally insane. I don't think of them as insane at all. They're they're not. Insane people make very lousy terrorists, but they have had their uses in the past. I think the, the main point is actually that with the ideological driver, there's always the people who are creating and running and driving the ideology who find terrorists to be very useful. But the terrorists themselves, these are people with a need for others to be afraid of them. They have a, a need to reinvent themselves as dramatic figures of history. In, in some ways, this is, you know, they, they sneered, they laughed at me, they, they derided me in grade school. Well, now look at me. Boom. You know, that, that's a big part of the makeup. Another expression I've used a lot, but that's also because it it happens to be true, is that terrorism is also a realm with very gray borders. Terrorism intersects with all sorts of other activities, and it's very hard to find out, find that one point where uh, one activity feeds into terrorism. Terrorism overlaps sometimes with organized crime. It overlaps sometimes with protest. Sometimes it is actually a a use of an adjunct to special warfare. Are you saying terrorism or... Violence. Violence is a different thing than terrorism. Like organized crime, I have, I can't recall organized crime using terrorism. I can recall them using violence and shooting it up in the street, but it wasn't an end in itself. Well, if you have, um, say, for an organized criminal who's using violence to uh, uh, dissuade the other drug gang from being in his area, Mm -hmm. that's one point. But if he's using violence to intimidate the authorities, to tell the police, stay away from my operations, to uh, tell the courts, don't you dare put us on trial, as, for example, the mafia was doing. But still, that's a self-interest that, that at least makes sense to me. It's not that they're out to kill somebody just for the sake of killing them. But then, again, you say, look at Mexico, some of the, the drug cartels where you actually get out there and commit conspicuous acts of violence that have no purpose at all just to enhance your own reputation, even if it actually damages your business interests. I, I see some value in, in creating fear in the people. That is an end that's understandable if you have an illegitimate power base and you're trying to hold on to it. You know, I remember before 9-11, hijackings were very common. 
<laughs> and I forgot, I already forget what the motivation of most hijackers was just to get out of the country they were in and into another one. Usually Cuba. Yeah. And 9-11 was originally assumed by a lot of people to be a hijacking at first, right? And then when they realized it wasn't a hijacking and some of the passengers helped take the planes down themselves, I remember saying to Jim Chapman, you're not going to see any more of these anymore because now that they know, that the passengers know, and once they know, it's over, right? Yeah. So you, and, and it's true, it never happened again. It was like that shoe bomber, once they found out that he was actually trying to light his shoe, he got jumped. Yeah. Well, it was the, the point that the, previously the aircraft hijacking was also an act of guerrilla theater, and you held the plane and the passengers, so you had a nice protracted hostage drama. Lots of negotiation, and the news cameras gathered around, you got to make your statements and feed things out. But... The new terrorism, you turn the aircraft into a missile and attack something on the ground. And that's one of the ways that the old terrorism of 40 years ago differs from the new terrorism. Ahmed, why are we being so nice to them? They are control agents. Why do we not cut their throats? No. If we kill them, other control agents will take the place. But if we overextend ourselves with kindness and hospitality, they will leave here, never suspecting that we are chaos. But is it not dangerous that they be here? They are liable to find our missiles. Hardly. The missiles are well disguised, and they could never find the underground entrance, as no one is allowed to enter the tent of my daughters. Besides, they're not suspicious. What if they get suspicious? Then they will die. Now put your dagger back in your scabbard. We must see to it that Smart and that girl make their way back to civilization and report that there is no chaos missile base here in the Sahara. Then when they search the rest of the world, we will be free to unleash our missiles and destroy their cities one by one. Yes. First New York, then London, Paris, Rome. Tel Aviv. No, not Tel Aviv. Why not Tel Aviv? Lady, you don't look it. we do not receive one billion dollars, we will unleash the terrifying power of Formula 6076767. Your country will be turned into a wasteland. Chaos has moved ahead with its threat to destroy your country. Less than 30 minutes ago, we dried up another body of water, Niagara Falls. Isn't that terrible? Now thousands of honeymooners will be stranded up there with nothing to do. <laughs> We're with John Thompson of the Strategic Capital Intelligence Group. John, I'd like to ask you a question about the law and whether or not there should be different laws with regards to the motivation of a particular act of violence. If it's perpetrated by, for example, um, a mafia hit, should uh, should the person who commits that mafia hit be treated in a different way, uh, um, judicially, than, say, a terrorist who does the same act of, say, commit a murder. Well, our our laws that we brought in right in 2002 and and have re-examined do make a distinction. However, uh, they are a very powerful set of laws. Uh, There's a lot of low-grade minor terrorism. Uh, For example, the Animal Liberation Front occasionally engages in acts of terrorism 
among my own, as you were, bona fides. They sent me a mail bomb once. But the the big terrorist groups in Canada get listed in the in Canadian Gazette as defined terrorist groups. And if you commit an act of violence on behalf of them, or if you commit acts that support violence, there are much more stiff penalties. Now, this, this is the point again. If you are going out and murdering your neighbor in a fit of pique, you know, we will put you in jail. If you've decided that you uh, really hated your father and loved your mother too much and are knifing people, we'll put you in jail as a dangerous offender and may not let you out ever. But if you are committing an act of violence for the jihad movement, for Hezbollah, or for any number of other listed terrorist groups, it may not be that you're the actual trigger man. You also could be doing the reconnaissance, the fundraising. The terrorist is supported with a logistic structure, and we have laws that apply to all of those as well, such so as 10- and 20-year offenses for supporting a terrorist act. I would agree that there should be different penalties based on your motivation for the act of terror or the criminal act, strictly because when you do it out of, for example, the jihad movement, you have been brainwashed, and it's very unlikely that you will be rehabilitated. Your goal has not been achieved for a mafia hit. You kill someone, you bump them off, there's your goal is achieved. You may not have to kill again, ever. <laughs> but for a jihadist, your goal is never achieved until everybody who's not like you is dead. So therefore, you have to be put into jail forever. Well, the point about ideology is, uh, again, it's a difficult one for a lot of people to accept. Uh, but people really have to go back and read uh, Eric Hoffer, especially his thin little book from 1952, The True Believer, when he was getting inside the mindset of communists and Nazis. You, you've got to, if you're going to talk about terrorists, you have to understand somebody who's committed to an ideology. Uh, what they've done is they've sacrificed a large part of their, their judgment their faculty for independent thought, to the cause and subordinated themselves to it. Uh, and it's very hard once you make that step to ever get back to a normal life. Very few people have the presence of mind, um, the, the self-confidence to withdraw from an ideology and come back to it. So often the terrorist is, maybe his own act wasn't that dangerous, but he's very, very unlikely to ever isn't revisit it, what he did for that cause. Isn't that a lot like religious belief itself, where someone uh, is religious all their life and gets to a point where maybe they decide that God doesn't exist or that they decide to become an atheist, and it demands a lot of their their judgment has to, has to be coming back into play. Because if you accept things on faith, you don't need judgment. Uh, actually, Hoffer does discuss that a little yeah. bit. Um, but I think, again, the, the point about religious belief is doubt. I mean, uh, faith is constantly questioning your uh, uh, your faith, constantly examining it and wrestling with it. And, you know, it's to blindly accept a faith and say, there, that's all my problems answered, is usually the wrong way to use your religious faith. But a political ideology like Nazism or communism in the day uh, like the jihad now, the surrender to it is often total in a way that you do not see with someone who is genuinely operating from religious principles. I, I understand what you're saying. I could say the same thing about myself, like I've surrendered myself to the philosophy of freedom in that sense, but I see it as a rational undertaking, not something that I feel was imposed upon me by someone else or that I adopted from someone else. And then there's the issue of 
even amongst all of these ideological groups who seem to, for example, with Islam, they're all supposedly under that religion, yet they have so many differences between them, no different than Christianity with all the different sects. So what makes one more powerful than the other? Why do some adopt these, say, terrorist values, terrorist tactics, and others don't? Or would you say that they're all prone to that? It's just a matter of degree. Um, in the, the whole history of religion, there are plenty of examples of people in, in almost all major religions that have taken the ball and run for the horizon with it and, and acted out with violence, usually in direct contradiction of what the religion actually teaches, you know, especially true for a Buddhist or a Christian who does these things. Mm-hmm. Uh, some other, there are some religious sects that specifically encourage violence. Islam, if you look at it fairly, it's lent itself only too readily to, for violence. Because again, if you, if you get back, Buddha and, and Christ very clearly rejected violence. You know, Muhammad was up to his bloody elbows in it. Well, that was a big a big difference between those religions. But for example, we were talking off the air earlier about the difference between ISIS and Al-Qaeda. And you're saying that uh, now maybe religiously they come from the same base, but politically they come from different bases? Is that how, would that be a correct way of d- differentiating them? Or Well, that's, a, that's one of the more interesting things that's developed in the last little while. We've looked at the, you know, the madness of what's been going on in Syria and Iraq, and then we actually find that ISIS originally began as an al-Qaeda franchise and ran off uh, in a life of its own. And now we've actually found that ISIS and al-Qaeda supporters have been killing each other in, in Syria. Uh, and, of course, there has been an ideological split. They're both Salafists. They're both uh, Wahhabis. They're both from the same hard interpretation mm-hmm. of, of Sunni Islam. But actually, uh, the difference is sort of like it's looking at the old left from 40 or 50 years ago where you've got – the Marxist-Leninists on one side who are disciplined and like to consider everything inside a narrow ideological framework, and you know, they all talk about party discipline and so on, and the Trotskyites who just, you know, get on out there and have fun, you know, commit an act for the revolution. So Al-Qaeda right now still likes to have a very reasoned, within their framework, approach to what they do. They still ideologically condition their recruits for months. Uh, and they still think about you know, religious judgments before they launch an attack. They also like to have well-organized attacks. The problem is it's been very hard for them to launch well-organized attacks for the last 14, 15 years. We're good at stopping them now. ISIS, on the other hand, it's sort of get out there and do it for the jihad. Do whatever. Well, no, no, Don't that, talk. Just act. That's an interesting statement. You said we're good at stopping them now. I don't know that that's an impression anybody has because we pick up the papers daily and we just see daily, 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 daily reports of atrocities that in in normal life, one of those events would capture the world's attention and, it, and it's discussed. And now we're, we're basically, you know, accepting all this as part of the normal day-to-day well, routine. We, we haven't seen the big, we haven't seen another 9-11 attack. We haven't seen an attempt to gas an entire city you know, since 2004. We haven't seen the, the, the big ambitious mass murder plans Al-Qaeda used to spin out. They still have them. It's still their dearest wish. Their problem is, is that the big heavy-duty terrorist attacks take a lot of work to organize, uh, and our intelligence agencies are very good at picking them up as they get started. 
Uh, and again, we've seen them in Canada. Remember, what we have in Canada is a whole long history of plots that never actually occurred because they were so complicated, we spotted them before they delivered an attack. Then you had Bebo, who basically grabbed a gun, ran up onto the war memorial, then ran up on a Parliament Hill by himself. Yes. And that is the new threat that ISIS has been offering. Is That's uh, what you call the do-it-yourself messaging. The do-it-yourself messaging. Yeah, yeah. You indoctrinate yourself, you equip yourself, you take a truck, take a sledgehammer, do whatever, and get out there and launch an attack. And it's much harder for us to spot it coming in and harder for us to That's stop a, it. You know, you just said something interesting, indoctrinate yourself. Is that possible? Is that, is, or is something else going on? Indoctrination always strikes me as something done to you by the other. Well, um, I, I think in the, the history of indoctrination, you've got the state where people choose to be indoctrinated. You, you didn't join the Nazi party unless you wanted to. You didn't join the uh, Marxist but you party. Don't, but but, but uh, when does somebody sit down and say, well, I'm going to indoctrinate myself in this particular destructive philosophy? But what was I thinking before I decided to indoctrinate myself in that, right? Well, welcome to the Internet. Every perspective is out there, and if you want to believe in something, you can find it. Uh, and if you're already halfway disposed, you can teach yourself to take up a particular perspective. Thinking about the Internet... And I agree with you that a lot of this seems to come hand in glove with the development of instant communication and uh, Facebook and Twitter and things like that, being able to rally a crowd instantly to a cause. The thing about the Internet is that it seems to be controlled, at least those specific groups, the social media groups, Facebook, Twitter, those kinds, by the left themselves. They brook no opposition from people who may speak ill of Islam. They banned them like they did with uh, Milo, uh, what's his name, uh, Yiannopoulos. And yet they allow jihadists to set up Facebook groups and to tweet about Islam and, and terror. Uh, and it seems like um, at will they, they let this happen. That, that's part of it. Of course, the other side of the Internet is you know, the dark web. Remember, Google and Facebook is only the, the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of other stuff going on, and um, you wouldn't believe some of the, uh, the channels that have been used to uh, condition people. Are the police aware of these? Like, do they know all of these channels? And, and it's they've got to be well known before enough people get on, online to get into the same mode of thought, wouldn't they? Well, that's it's one of the things the police don't like to talk about. Uh, and remember, it's actually not police agencies that do it. It's other intelligence agencies. But they spend a lot of time monitoring the web and picking these characters up, mm -hmm. you know, talking the talk. But when they want to start walking the walk, that's when we have to move in. What's you and you guys do to get in all that trouble today? soldiers and we're holding off my young kid he was scared out of his wits finally he managed to pull himself free and then one of the bastards drove a bayonet through his throat and we were right there with the camera we got it then they ripped the film out of the camera and herded us back here I'm surprised this Kimba lets you and your people in here I'll be more surprised if he lets us out how'd he get the job well, after they won independence, there were three candidates for the presidency. General Kemper, a Colonel Bobby, and 
a physician, a moderate, called Dr. Okoye. Now, Okoye wanted to maintain links with the mother country, while our two gallant freedom fighters ranted about neocolonialism, etc., etc. Kimber got elected. Don't ask me why he won over Bobby. What I've heard, nothing to choose between them. A week after Kimber took office, he forced Bobby into exile and threw Dr. Okoye in prison. Any opposition left? You don't oppose Kimber. That's treason. For that, he has your entire family murdered. <laughs> Nobody really knows what's going on here. You'd think one of his neighbors come in here and kick him out. No, he's no threat to any other country. He's content to stay within his borders and slaughter his own. I mean slaughter. Can't you smell it? Trouble is, there's so much of it everywhere else in the world. Nobody wants to know. No, sir. Hi, Chief. Hello, Max. Well, we got here as fast as we could. What's up? Well, I'm sorry to disturb you in the middle of the night, but we're facing a terrible crisis, the possible destruction of the entire world. Well, couldn't it have waited until morning? What happened, Chief? Chaos has a nuclear bomb. Doesn't everybody? Max, Chaos is the only private organization to have the bomb. Don't you know what that means? Their stock will go way up. It means that they can use the bomb without fear of retaliation. They're not a country, and we don't know the location of their missile base. Could Chaos be bluffing, Chief? Well, they promised to prove it in exactly 72 hours if we don't give them what they want. How? By blowing up one of America's largest cities. Did they say what city? All we know is that they threatened to wipe out the city containing our finest intellectual minds and greatest leaders. Well, at least Washington is safe. You're tuned into Just Right, and you can listen to all of our past broadcasts by visiting www.justrightmedia.org. And do take the time to do that. You'll be able to find previous interviews that we've had with our guest in studio today, John Thompson. John, I wanted to ask you, I mean, we're talking about all these people who are using small weapons, etc., etc., but there's a growing fear that the nuclear arsenal has been let loose upon the world and that there's a lot of private interests and, and countries who we can't trust uh, who have access to this material. Is that a, is that a possible threat? Are we, are we going to see a nuclear uh, terrorist threat coming from some source at some point in time? Is it inevitable? We do with Iran. <laughs> well, beyond the, beyond the state... Mm -hmm. initiated the situation. Well, uh, again, we'll say a, a nuclear armed state let a bomb walk into the hands of a terrorist group so that they can use it, giving the state that may have... Well, even the terrorist groups themselves aren't really states in and of themselves, and they're hard to, to, to focus on as a target. No, but it's always, say, for example, the risk that uh, a, a country like North Korea or Iran or, uh, say, if Pakistan's government turns any more bizarre... Uh, that they, they might let a bomb get in the wrong hands and give the state plausible deniability as to a, a nuclear attack. And we've been 70 years without seeing nuclear weapons used in anger since they were uh, 
brought to force Japan to the surrender table in, in 1940. Because governments got smart, but we're, we're not just talking governments anymore now. We're talking about, well, rogue states at best. Well, here's or, is, the, is the point is that weapons of mass destruction, and don't forget there's chemical and biological weaponry yes. out there, uh, and terrorists have used chemical weaponry and been very interested in it. And they've tried to use biological weaponry, except that normally when they've resorted to it, no one noticed the attack. But it's definitely something that uh, attracts them, and they keep coming to it. The, the thing is, all this technology is old, and it's no longer exclusively in the hands of the state. It is hard to produce a nuclear weapon. It's easier to acquire radiological materials and disperse them around, uh, say, in a city with, a, say, a large truck bomb. And there have been a few threats that way. But it's... You know, I'm, I'm thinking we live in an age now where people can buy their own drones and fly these things around. Who, what's going to stop somebody from just attaching a bomb to it and going to it? Well, a, again, with a, a bomb, um, it's the size of the bomb that matters. And there's not drones around that carry a really suitably large explosive uh, package yet. But we'll see them. But they can also have a small bomb with some uh, radioactive element as well, blow up over a stadium, for example, um, and then uh, you've got a very dangerous situation there. Even a small explosion with some uh, radioactive uh, material could contaminate a lot of people. Well, one of my little rules in thinking about terrorism is it's the thought that counts. You know, even if you don't actually get the result, it's the fact that you were even thinking about it and displayed. Terrorizes people. Yeah, it, it mm -hmm. does terrorize people. Um, the, the Chechens, for example, did build a, uh, a dirty bomb and buried it in the Moscow park, but they didn't set it off. But that was enough to give uh, the Russian government the willies. Uh, Cesium-137 isn't as dangerous as other isotopes, but it's bad enough. Uh, but again, it's the, the fact that you're thinking about that. Uh, but we remember when uh, al-Qaeda's training camps were overrun in 2001 uh, that there was footage recovered from their uh, experiments with chemical weaponry on dogs. You know, they're definitely thinking about using chemical weaponry. Uh, Zarqawi, the, the person who first set up al-Qaeda in Iraq, had a, a plan, actually, that was quite well advanced to deliver a massive chemical attack in, in Jordan. He uh, would have killed tens of thousands of people. They had the substance in the van. It was on the way to the target. So the, it's definitely in their thinking. But this is also the sort of big, well-organized terrorism. It's very hard to arrange. You know, there's money moving around. There's specialists. There's uh, special requirements. It's Theoretically, it's quite possible. In practical terms right now, it's very, very hard to arrange. But they'll try, and they'll keep trying. And we're coming into a world where, for example, uh, the, the technical revolution in robotics, in uh, genetics and, and microbiology, it just it's going to produce all sorts of new things, and some of them will be nightmares. And there are people out there who want to uh, give us those nightmares. You know, we differentiate in this discussion and, and elsewhere between state-sponsored terrorism and, how would you call it, uh, sort of like anarchistic terrorism, people off on their own, the ISIS groups even, and the Al-Qaeda, which are organized but still not states. And I'm thinking that if these governments or if these terrorist organizations ever achieved some of their goals, which would, uh, for ISIS, it would be a single caliphate in um, Syria and Iraq and uh, the Levant, perhaps, if they ever did achieve that statehood, they would look just like Iran. 
They might. Or However, Saudi Arabia. We have the 20th century to look back on and what happens when ideologues take control of a state. And remember, you, there is no form of political violence as bad as ideologues running a state. We've seen that with the Soviets. We've seen it with Hitler. We've seen it with Mao. Paul Pot, where he managed to kill, I think, three out of every seven Cambodians in uh, uh, four years. And this is, a, this is actually the most distressing lesson about ISIS, that ISIS got control of a population. And we know they were committing all sorts of atrocities because they were putting them up on Facebook. If our governments had any of the sort of humanity that would have been true years ago, we would have jumped in there. There would have been hundreds of thousands of Western troops getting in there to liberate these people immediately from the likes of ISIS. You're quite a, um, an expert, if I may use that word, on the Second World War and the history of that. Um, how many Canadian soldiers were in the Second World War? Uh, in the Second World War, we, I think we had about 1.2 million people who joined up. Yeah, uh, I think it was probably one of the largest in the world, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken. In proportion, we had the fourth yeah. largest army, or rather navy, in that. That's because two big navies had all their vessels. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I'm thinking that we rallied around a, a very specific target being Nazi Germany and uh, Japan, Imperial Japan, and we defeated them, well, the Canadians more or less, in Germany, but over, what, four or five years, um, long before the Americans actually joined the conflict. And is it because we don't have a well-defined target or we're unwilling to define the target that this has been a protracted um, incidence of jihad, decades long, rather than getting it over with by sending in a million troops? Well, that's part of it. The, the other point about terrorism is if you go after, a, I mean, the terrorists can fade back in the woodwork. The, you know, ISIS was stomping around wearing uniforms and, you know, looking like they had military equipment that they know how to use, uh, which they didn't really. But they, they were pretending to be a regular military. But again, it actually, this part of the problem is that if the combat boot had splattered down on them, they would have faded off into the woodwork. I mean, it's like trying to sort of go after cockroaches or bed bugs. You can just keep suppressing them, but they'll always keep popping up somewhere else as ISIS and al-Qaeda have proved time and again. But I think the point is that the will has to be there. This is something that we can't tolerate, them getting control of a civil population. The unfortunate thing is that we're also moving into, uh, uh, I hate to get all academic, but a post-Westphalian world. We're in a world now where actually the utility of a state's military power is shrinking. It, it's too expensive and we've got too many limitations on using it. And non-state actors are mushrooming right now. So we're looking at a world like the world, say, between the fall of the Roman Empire and the Treaty of Westphalia in 1648, where private actors are engaging in violence. And it's, you know, terrorist groups, mul political militias, merchant cartels, you know, name the sort of private actors out there. And they're all busy, and they're committing violence in new and more interesting ways, including cybernetically. Uh, and as a result, this is going to be, should we say, a disease-rich, well, that's a wrong analogy, but it's going to be a very difficult environment for us to work in. Well, it's interesting you say that because you're speaking of ideologies driving things, and I'm just looking at um, General Michael Hayden, who uh, former NSA CIA director is on the front page of the Epic Times here, lamenting our all-consuming focus on the war on terror. 
and saying that while we're looking at all these single actors and all the you know all of this terrorism that's going on on the private level, nobody's looking at the big countries, China, Russia, what they're doing on the world stage. Are are we all sitting here consumed with all this terrorist threat from individuals and and you know even from punks to say while we should be really worried about the big players in this game china sort of swatting mosquitoes yeah. as we walk through the lion's den un, un, unawares of the lions looking at us i'm reminded of uh, ken hillborn you know who, who was a historian and uh, spoke to us a lot before he passed away and he was always saying that you know history's events have always taken us by surprise and that nobody predicted them. Nobody predicted 9-11 when it came. And I don't think you could pick two people in the country who would even know what Islam or Muslims were before 9-11. Well, I th- think this is also the point about maybe we should be changing our thinking to this sort of new uh, new world where there are any number of realities that are going to be security threats, and we'd better be taking them all seriously. Uh, and we've had a happy time uh, the last few decades. We haven't paid nearly as much on security as we used to. Uh, and that's going to have to change. Uh, we're going to be needing more police, more military. On the other hand, if you get that level of security, there's a whole mess of other lovely, wonderful projects the government shouldn't be paying for. Because you can, and the states may have to go back to think about the fact that their real job is to provide security and then let everything else look after itself, not get involved in every aspect of our lives and run things. I think that's one way to look at it is to increase the budget for those kinds of security measures. But when you have police departments hiring imams as spiritual leaders who actually agree with beheading people and um, oppressing homosexuals or uh, setting up a caliphate, um, it's sort of it's sort of giving them ammunition, quite literally, that if you have a police department, you give them more money, but they are actually turning into your ideological enemy. Um, maybe that's not the way to go until we get hold of the reluctance to name Islam as the real threat in our society. Well, again, if that reluctance will come up for another threat later. Uh, and if we keep wanting to uh, treat the symptom and not the disease, you know, we're going to keep making all sorts of mistakes. But again, this is going to be a world with all sorts of exciting security channel challenges. Uh, and we just don't take enough of them seriously until we've been, uh, until we've been mauled by them. And uh, yeah, the, the police force should not be hiring, uh, you know, equity consultants uh, to tell them how to think. They should be putting more uh, officers out on the street. That's what you do with the money. <laughs> how many bombs are there? Uh, four Polaris submarines, 16 missiles in each, three warheads per missile. But how many actual bombs? Oh, 192. Each one, at least five times the power of the Hiroshima bomb. I know what you're thinking. Not very many. What did I? It's enough. <laughs> Not with 1,200 Soviet missiles trained on Britain waiting to retaliate instantly. 1,200? Mm. Still, Britain's always fought against the odds, haven't we? <laughs> the Armada, Battle of Britain. Yes, and of course, we have a great deal more firepower at our disposal when we get trapped. In the meantime, thank goodness for conventional forces. Oh, Minister, our conventional forces would hold the Russians for, at most, 72 hours. Is that all? Mm-hmm. So, in the event of an emergency, I would have to make an instant decision. Oh, no, no, no. You'll probably have 12 hours. Oh, wow. Shouldn't we do something about this? We should. 
For 20 years, our politicians have told us they can't afford the conventional forces to do the job. Conventional forces are terribly expensive, Prime Minister. Much cheaper just to press a button. <laughs> General, I was hoping to have a word with you. Wanted to sound you out about something. Um, you're not going to like it. Tell me the worst, Prime Minister. It's going to come as a blow. Very unpopular with the services, but there it is. I'm planning to cancel Trifold. Good idea. Now, hold on. Don't jump in too quickly. It's no good trying to argue. I've made up. What did you say? It's <laughs> a good idea. You mean you're in favour? Absolutely. Why? Well, we don't need it. Big waste of money. Totally unnecessary. Well, that's what I said. You're right. And the whole defence staff agree? Oh, the Navy want to keep it. It's launched from their submarines. Take away Triton, they'd hardly have a role left. And the RAF? Well, you could ask them. If you're interested in the opinion of garage mechanics. <laughs> I'm afraid they want to keep it. See, they want to drop the bomb from an aeroplane, you see. All they're really interested in is flying around dropping things on people. <laughs> well, they're very good at it. They couldn't even close the runway at Point Stanley. Probably never even find Moscow, and if they did, they'd probably miss it. <laughs> How are we going to get the policy through, if only the army is in favour? Well, as you know, Prime Minister, the Chief of Defence Staff job is short of becoming vacant. Technically, it's the Navy's turn, but it's your decision. Now, if you wish to appoint a soldier, of course it's up to you. Tell me, General, aren't you the most senior soldier? That happens, I believe I am. <laughs> Thank you. Good advice. Oh, uh, Prime um, Minister, can I introduce you to Mrs Glossop? Extraordinary thing. Last, I've actually come across a Prime Minister with a bit of sense. Really? Where? Which is the lucky country? <laughs> well, ah, he's going to cancel Trident. Wonderful. I'd hardly believe my ears. I'm surprised you're happy about reintroducing conscription. Conscription? He didn't say anything about conscription. Well, that's the whole point, you see. Slashes unemployment wins votes. We can't have conscription. We're an elite army. Best in the world. Professional, tough, disciplined. We can't bring in a mob of punks and freaks and junkies and riffraff. A quarter of a million football hooligans? Peeling potatoes in order shot? Yes, I thought you'd say that. Well, it'd be just an ordinary army. Like the one that won the last war. Have an interesting article here speaking, you know, taking the picture back to what we should be doing on our side of, of this equation. And in this editorial from the Free Press or Post Media Network from July 26, it starts off every few months, U.S. Secretary of State John Kerry calls climate change as great a threat or a greater threat than ISIS. Do you agree? Oh, um, that's... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. But, but they're saying it. That's, that, that's the West talking right now. I, I think, actually, the, the only statement I'll make on it is what I really hate about the climate change debate is it's distracted us from real environmental problems. You know, like the, the plastics in the ocean, the overuse of nitrogen fertilizers, um, what's happening to our bees right now, you know, um, climate change happens, always happens. Yeah. Anyone who knows anything about paleontology knows that. But uh, we've wasted an awful lot of time and effort when there have been real environmental problems. So why would, why would anyone on, in a Western government think this? Why would they think? What, see, what I'm getting at is not the issue itself, but the thinking in the minds of people like Kerry and the other politicians I'll who could possibly that. say... I can sir? tell you why. Okay. It's because they share the same philosophy as the terrorists. Again, the left... Well, they would deny that. Well, of course they would. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. We actually yeah. want to no, kill no, and no, maim and destroy. But, but if you look at it, the left 
have control of uh, our leaders are left wing. They all are. Even if they say they're conservatives, they're left wing. Yes, in, the ideology in our... of the left, as I said before, is to destroy. They love destruction. They do not want to see a prosperous, capitalistic, happy uh, populace. They need division. They need strife. They need victims. Um, and if there are none out there, they create them. So they are in bed with the um, political Islamists. They are in bed with the jihadists ideologically. They see very little difference except maybe in extremes um, I don't know. in, in I, their I, tactics and their goals. I would say the left in North America is more anti-capitalist than it is totally destructive. Well, you have uh, to ask yourself the question, why, for example, do the feminists here in Canada and the West um, not speak out against the atrocities permitted against uh, women in Islam. Why do they not speak out about wearing the hijab as a symbol of slavery, slavery and second citizenship? It's well, because feminism has the same ideology of political Islamists, left-wing control. I, I Maybe I'm a little more cynical. I, I think it's the old uh, oh, gee, term I of that was pretty more cynical. cynical. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking, he's more cynical? Oh, boy. Uh, well, there's nothing like fighting paper tigers and straw men, especially heroically fighting paper tigers and straw men when you, you've actually got real targets to go after. So if we are, again, going after about the uh, you know, patriarchal order rather than actually confronting a real uh, misogynistic patriarchal order, and you, you can make progress, illusionary progress on one hand and think you're doing a great job and ignore the growing problem. Uh, climate change allows, you know, time, money, and effort to be spent on an illusionary problem and ignore real problems, uh, including real environmental problems that are much more dire. Um, now, terrorism is something you can't ignore. That, that is one of the points. It, uh, if you just... I said well, heads I win. Attention, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, but heads I win, tails you lose. It, we have seen what happens if the terrorists keep gnawing away. It's like having a dog clamped on your ankle and chewing. You, you can only act like it's not there for so long before it starts to do real damage. Um, but there are other series of security issues that, yes, we do need to be paying attention to as well. And again, the, when I, I talked about the post-Westphalian world, we're coming into a, a full-spectrum threat environment where nation-states with nuclear weapons are still there and everything all the way down to somebody launching a cyber attack that is not just about you know messing up a website, but is actually, say, about turning off a power plant in the middle of winter, something that will actually kill people. Are we, are we on a precipice here of uh, political change when we see things like the constant immigration into uh, European countries actually making an effect when it came, for example, with Brexit. I don't think that if there was uh, the Islamic threat in England that there is today, that UK would not have left the, uh, Europe. Well, there, there is, I think the, the point is that uh, a lot of people are recognizing that there are real security problems and been wanting action on them, and they're not seeing it. So they're starting to regard governments that can't see what's in front of them as an obstruction to their own safety. But I think this is also, uh, again, part of the point about uh, the modern terrorist environment is that especially, you know, the last few months with this cascade of impulsive, uncon seemingly unplanned attacks by individuals is that the police 
you know, can't keep reacting to them. We can't expect the police to, say, for example, uh, be packing an anti-tank loadout with every public event in case someone drives a transport truck into the crowd. You just can't do that. You can't guard everything. And so actually, I think it's going to be incumbent on people in an environment where the police and the security apparatus are less and less able to protect them, to actually take more protection of their own hands. And again, you have to look at a full-spectrum threat. You know, one of the, the, there have been some calls in Europe, uh, I think the chief rabbi of France, the head of Interpol, and just last week, the president of the Czech Republic said, you know, with these sudden attacks with transport trucks and fire axes and machetes, citizens will have to arm themselves. We, we need more people. I know in Canada, it's not publicly discussed, but we're trying to find ways to get more armed police officers out on the street. Um, <clears throat> and already running into issues because, you know, an off-duty cop doesn't want to be carrying his gun because that means he's never off-duty. Um, but we're realizing we have to have more of an armed presence out there to actually deter uh, these, these impulsive quick attacks, but also the variety of other threats that are emerging. And I think it also comes back to it's incumbent on the individual now to look to their own security. Now, in some ways, this, uh, for example, the Ministry of Public Safety has been telling Canadians until they're blue in the face uh, everyone's responsible to look after themselves for four days without power or water. You know, have you got the means in your home? Emergency preparedness. Uh, emergency preparedness. Everybody needs to be doing that, not sitting there turning up uh, in an evacuation with a toothbrush in your pocket and expecting everything else to be provided for Should you. Should we have more of a Switzerland model of um, civil defense where, if I'm not mistaken, and I think you'd probably be much more in the know about this than I, where people have weapons in their home issued to them by the government, and when called upon, they are within minutes of taking that weapon, donning a uniform, and defending a bridge. Um, that's, that's a good model. Switzerland is, I think, much safer than some other countries. But again, um, I... It's not practical because, again, if you're looking at a case like Nice or Orlando, you can't say, time out, i got to run home and pick up my government-issued assault rifle. So then perhaps you need more of a Texas model or some of those states where you can actually walk around with a gun strapped to your hip as a matter of um, course. Um, there are advantages to that. There are places in the United States that no terrorist would ever attack. Um, I've been in places where the... Actually, Canadians have some very funny ideas about what the Americans are like. I've been in places with a total saturation of the gun culture uh, where it's legal to wear a gun belt on the street. The thing is, actually, nobody is. You never wear it. It's almost like the fact that you can go t a woman can go topless in Ontario. Say, yeah. <laughs> I've never seen one. <laughs> We're still waiting. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty much. When you, but on the other hand, it means to someone who's planning mischief is that they never know if there's something out there that... But they can go to a site, that, to a restaurant or a cinema that says, you know, no guns, please. And, okay, I can launch an attack here. And, mm -hmm. and in they go. Where if they did it on the main street, they'd be dead in seconds. It's true. When you go around the states with uh, open carry or even concealed carry, you know that 
um, people are not. I guess it's out of politeness, out of not wanting to scare people, offend people, that they don't wear their weapons. It's a basic social value that you don't want to look like a dork. But it's almost it's almost like the terrorism <laughs> thing. <laughs> it's almost like the terrorism thing too. It's just that the mere mention of what they can do strikes terror into our uh, into our hearts. The mere fact that your neighbor probably has a pistol uh, under his jacket prevents you from committing crimes. It, it, it seems to work that way, actually. There, there's correlations. But I, th- I think more to the point is that um, the average citizen in a country like Canada where you, know, you can't carry a, a gun around in public and unless you're on your way to a range and it's in a locked box with a lock on it and your ammunition is locked separately. But, I mean, people need to be more autonomous about their own security. They have to actually start thinking about things. And um, I, I think it's to the point that that's sort of that safety culture, not a paranoid culture, but a safety culture where you go into an environment and if you go into a restaurant or a theater, do you look for the fire exits? You always think, what happens if there's a fire here? What do I do? And make make your plan, at least in your head. But again, that all that sort of safety culture uh, for a, a terrorist attack or something else, you fight, flight, or hide. Well, uh, <clears throat> I don't run fast anymore. Uh, I don't hide very well anymore, but I'm very competitive by nature. And we have seen, again, even if I'm not carrying guns uh, or there have been a number of cases of people who've actually stood up and attacked terrorists with their bare hands, and that mm. actually deters them. Um, well, after 9-11, as Bob mentioned, that's not going to happen again so easily because the mere minute that somebody shouts, you know, Allah Akbar on an, on an airplane, he's going to get pummeled. Yeah, uh, tackled immediately. And uh, that's the sort of the healthy reaction we need is that... Uh, you stand up to, to any particular threat and immediately react to it. And people perhaps need to think about their their own ability to protect themselves, not by necessarily carrying a gun around everywhere, but just to have that frame. That and I think that's the point. If the survival um, or of your family for four or five days without power or water is your responsibility, your survival in a circumstance in which someone could launch an attack out of the crowd with a um, fire axe or a transport truck is your responsibility. You know, there, there's the American joke that when when seconds count, the police are minutes away. Yeah, I, I'm a fan of the TV show NCIS, and on it they had a character, uh, an Israeli woman, and somebody walked up behind her and basically startled her, you know, and she immediately went into combat mode. And he joked at her saying, you know, boy, you're touchy. And he says, I'm from Israel, the land of the quick or the dead. And I think we have to get into the mentality. Unfortunately, uh, we've been complacent that uh, we, have to, we have to start thinking about being quick. Well, citizens have to take responsibility for themselves. And I, I think that's one of the, the takeaways we've been seeing from the way terrorism has evolved in the last couple of years is that we're all going to have to take responsibility for ourselves and be much more robust about it. I'm not saying we turn our society into an armed camp, but half of being armed is not the tools in your hand, it's the reactions in your head. 
Well, maybe the lesson to be learned from that is that national defense begins with self-defense and that we should all be of that mind. John, thanks for joining us again today. And we're going to invite our listeners to join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you next week. Fade into color, color into black and white, under the bedclothes. Everything will be alright. Well, there it goes, 99. Oh, Max. What a terrible weapon of destruction. Yes. You know, China, Russia, and France should outlaw all nuclear weapons. We should insist upon it. What if they won't, Max? Then we may have to blast them. It's the only way to keep peace in the world.